Welcome to Short Course, episode 94 for March 10th, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. What's on my mind this week is actually inspired by a podcast that I did two years ago with Cody Axon and Mason Lane. This was actually brought to mind. Uh, Bill Godbold actually posted on, on Instagram about this. And I went back and, and listened to it, and it's an interesting little time capsule. This was in the the fading days of the podcast that Cody did at the time, the Shoot Fast podcast, which if uh, if Short Course can rise from the ashes, I, I hope that one day, one day the Shoot Fast podcast will as well, because I, I definitely miss hearing Cody's thoughts and insights. He's, he's one of those people who rarely wastes your time when he's, when he's talking about shooting, but, and Mason, Mason is the same way. And he would often have Mason on and they would talk. And on, on this particular episode, the three of us got together basically because USPSA had just announced in March, the, the basically package of rules changes that were going to be effective for 2021. And part of what informed that discussion was the fact that these were this was not the first time that the rules were being changed and in particular that that production and carry optics were being monkeyed with the the thing that was particularly egregious was the year before in in 2020 when the when production and, and carry optics had both had the weight limit raised to 59 ounces so previously production had been that you had to the gun had a listed weight and you had to be originally it was within two ounces of the listed weight. At some point they upped that variance to plus or minus four ounces. And so that's when you started seeing guys getting the the shock bottle brass base pads. And then in, in 2020, it was basically decided to just do away with that. And at the time, carry optics had had a 45 ounce weight limit across the board. And that was, that was with the optic and the mag. And at the time the shadow two was, was the new hotness and people were having to do quite a bit of, of milling on their shadow twos to get them under that, that 45 ounce weight limit. And so in 2020, they come out and they say, yeah, forget about the weight limit. It's just going to be 59 ounces for, for both divisions. And I think it's worth quoting. I mean, at the time I had, it was pretty obvious to anybody looking that that the 59 ounces it was basically deleting the weight limit without having the 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 temerity to actually do that which seemed very strange to me if you're just going to get rid of the weight limit just get rid of the weight limit but raising it to something unrealistically high seemed strange and it wasn't until let's see this is the i got my paper copy here in front of me this is the november december 2022 edition of the uspsa magazine formerly known as front site where jake martins wrote carry optics by the numbers where he says, and I quote, uh, this is talking about the the in-person board meeting, February of 2020. Every board member went over the current rules at the time, and several different proposals were made with regard to weight, allowed modifications, and how to try to get the two divisions more in line with each other. This would mean allowing more modifications in production division handguns. Since many people have already modified their production legal firearm for carry optics, it only made sense to allow the same type of slide modifications. No, no. 
Also, with many guns weighing over 45 ounces being legal in production, it made sense to settle on a weight for both divisions. There can be a lot of arguments about 59 ounces being ridiculous compared to the suggested 50 or 55 ounces, but the ideal was that it would be a catch-all for anything out there, or anything that might be coming. So this 59 ounces, as Jake you know, discloses and was pretty obvious at the time, was, was, meant, to, was meant to just be no weight limit that you could effectively have any gun of any weight, and that was the end of it. And then in 2021, the rule changes come out, and the the high-level changes, the the main ones that affected production and carry optics, were removing the equipment position restrictions, so people could, in theory, show up and shoot production with a, a gun appendix, which seems completely nonsense to me. The idea that you're going to show up and shoot your quote-unquote carry gun in production but then you still ha- only have 10 rounds in the gun, and so you're going to need four magazines, three or four magazines on your belt to get through a 32-round stage. So the, this, there was basically no point to put appendix and carry optics, or append, appendix in production. It made some sense in carry optics where in most stages you can get through the whole stage with two 140-millimeter magazines, and so you'd have the one in the gun and the one, you know, a little sidecar holster reload. That, okay, fair enough. That that made enough sense. But the idea that someone's going to show up and shoot production with a, an appendix gun and then have three or four mags on their side, it, it never made any sense. So making this change without also increasing the production capacity made no sense. And it's not like they didn't talk about it. In the meeting minutes for this in-person board meeting as well as the, the year before it, but in, in the 2021 board meeting minutes, they say, Review discussion topic from February 2020 related to production division increasing to 15 rounds, failed by unanimous consensus without support or motion. So they talked about it, but it never occurred to them that it was unrealistic for people to show up and shoot a a production gun appendix with 10 round magazines. Didn't even cross their mind. Okay, fine. But the other rules that, that, that were in this package included allowing magnets, which, okay, fine. Ipsic has had those for a while. They're pretty easy to get your hands on. And then a simple innocuous one-line change to allow flashlights in production and carry optics attached to the gun as long as they're functional. And this effectively allowed you to attach a frame-mounted weight as long as the whatever was on it produced some small number of lumens. And they they made no effort to regulate the the maximum weight of the flashlight as long as it was under that 59 ounces. You could, it was legal. And so, of course, within a few months or weeks, I don't remember exactly how long it took them to do it, but lock the, the lock grips came out with a, a little flashlight with a, a keychain light and this big honk of brass. And I think the thing is seven ounces or something. It's, it's a complete mockery of the fact that the board could have seen this coming. They just, I guess, didn't think anybody would bother to do it. I just, I, I, I still cannot even understand the, the thinking there. But anyway, so all of this comes out and, okay, maybe you can buy a magnet and, and slap it on your, your belt in time for production nationals, which is two months away in, in, May, in early May. But the odds of being able to get a holster made for your new gun with a flashlight, pretty low. You know, these are, these are not the ru- kind of rules that should be being rolled out this close to nationals. Now, there's two problems there. One is nationals for any division being that early in the season, which I think is is completely inappropriate. And then second, the fact that they're rolling out these rules that late in the season, in, in March, once people are actually starting to get geared up. 
and a lot of uh, a lot of the discussion on this podcast was about the fact that these gear changes are, are becoming more and more common. And I have to say that is thankfully one thing that has that has slowed down. That is one thing that has gotten better. And and the, the tenor of the conversation was basically when is this shit going to stop? It, it just it seems like every year they're, they're just opening things up and, and making things worse and, and not really improving the divisions, just piling more stuff in. And I have to say, so that was that was spring of 2021 in the fall of 2021. Mike Foley is removed as president and then the bylaws rewrite begins, which they wanted to complete before the special election to replace Foley. And those bylaws included the the new language that's now enforced that says that a that that all the the competitor equipment rule changes for the year have to be decided on. They have to have 90 days for member feedback and they all go into effect January 31st of each year. So there's going to be at most one update to competitor equipment. Now, obviously they later had, they forgot about provisional divisions. So they had to go back and add some rules about that. And now we've got limited optics coming as a provisional division, but, but that's a, that's a separate topic. They at least regulated the idea that if there are going to be any equipment changes, it's going to be January 31st. And then you're going to have at least a little more time before the first nationals to, to figure out what you want, how you want to change your gear for the season, given those changes. But the other, another part of the the discussion that, that was an interesting little time capsule was the fact that we were talking about the issue that this, this whole notion of trying to grow the sport by lowering the barrier to entry, by making the gear rules in every division more and more accommodating. It was counterproductive in the sense that matches, there aren't matches to support these new shooters, at least around us, where the three of us were talking, there was not an abundance of slots at matches. And so the idea of trying to get new people to sign up, get new shooters into the sport without growing the number of clubs, the number of matches, or just the, the, the supply of matches to attend was obviously counterproductive. What was interesting reflecting on that was it has now been about it's been two years since we recorded that. And in those two years, that problem went away in the sense that it's been a while since club matches around here have been filling up, at least. And that's starting to change now. I think it's almost certain that what was going on was in the summer of 2020 with lockdowns and the George Floyd protests and everything guns were selling in record numbers, reloading components became very difficult to find. And still to this day, primers are eight cents a piece. If you can find them and you can buy them only in limited quantities still in most places. So primers still have not even come back into ready supply, much less come anywhere close to, to, to pre pre crisis prices. But Ammunition, loaded ammunition seems to be coming back. And so it seems like that was probably the thing that was, there was a, a fraction of the membership, some third or quarter of, of active participants who, when they couldn't get ammo, just stopped shooting. And it seems like that's, that's starting to turn around. And so we're coming back around to this problem that had been temporarily abated, which is where do these, where are these new shooters supposed to go? The, as a part of the, the in-person board meeting minutes at, at this year's in-person board meeting, as always, Jake published the, the, the membership numbers, 
USPSA is at an all-time high number of members. We've continued to, to keep recruiting. There are more people with active USPSA memberships than ever, but I haven't seen the data on, is there anywhere for them to go shoot? I mean, it is interesting that some of the, the third-party guys, competition shooting analytics and practical shooting insights, they've both, through different data sets, tried to measure level one, level two, level three participation. And basically it looks like at the at the level two state match, level three area match level, participation has been has been pretty much constant because guys that want to compete at that level, they'll figure out how to get components. But at least through the end of 2022, level one match participation has has still not recovered to the level that it was at in 2019. I'm sure some of that is ammo availability. I'm sure some of that is probably matches that shut down and never started back up again. I'm sure some of it are people who didn't shoot for a year and then have picked up some other hobby. And so they're just, they don't have time to get back into shooting. But at the end of the day, although the membership numbers are at, a, at an all time high, I'm not convinced that there's anywhere for these people to go shoot. And I think that is going to be an issue. And it's, it's really very puzzling to me that this is not more of a priority for USPSA at the national level to figure out. Because as I've said before, there are certain things that are that are better solved at the grassroots level. And I think certainly coming up with ideas, trying solutions for, for solving this problem at the grassroots level is good. But if USPSA wants to be able to give these people that are all joining places to go shoot, they need to be talking to clubs and match directors and figuring out how we increase the supply of matches and slots at matches for people to go shoot. They, they can't just make all these new members and then just magically expect clubs and more matches just, just to appear. It's not going to happen. And this is one of those areas where I, I will readily admit that I, I do not know what the answer is. I have some ideas, but I think this is, this is one of those places where as someone at the national level, whether it's a, an area director or a, a, a staff employee of, of USPSA, there needs to be some kind of of initiative or information gathering program where you actually try and go around the country and solicit ideas and ask, hey, what's working? What's not? What have you done? Because, I mean, fundamentally, it, it, it looks to me like there, there are basically three ways to solve this problem. One is the classic just starting more matches at ranges that don't already have them. And this is this is an age-old problem. There have been discussions about how to solve this for as long as I've been in the sport. And I don't know that any of them have really been tried and failed. For example, the, there's always been this idea of USPSA having some kind of store of, of props that can be sent to a new club to get them up and running or some kind of discount program to get them up and running. And... I don't know that anything like that has ever actually been really tried with any actual follow through. Maybe it has. And I, I didn't hear about it. That's possible. I'm, I'm not omniscient, but it, it seems like whatever all these ideas, none of them have really been implemented in any kind of cohesive way. There, there's also been this idea that, oh, what we need is a, a resource for level one match directors for new match directors to have a bunch of stages to pick from. And I definitely will say there the the USPSA stage library is not the easiest thing to use, but it does exist. You can go on there and basically see 
you can just scroll through and see all the stages from i believe all the the level two and above matches basically anything that's been form submitted on a on a form c for a for a level two match for nroi approval anything that's been approved is is on there so there is that now you may have to make them work at your range you also may have to figure out how to make them legal which is another issue i mean i think there are definitely there, there's room for not just having a rule book, but having something like a handbook, having something that says, hey, here are the 10 most common ways that stages end up being illegal, and here's what to do about them. Here are 10 ways to make your stages more interesting. Having some kind of, of handbook like that, that isn't just, here's what's allowed, here's what's not, but hey, here are some good ideas, here's some places to start, here are some tips, Here here's where to go ask for help. I mean, the, the fact that there's to my knowledge, still no, say, private, it could just be a, a, a web form, just a generic web form for match directors to new match directors to ask questions, match directors looking for ideas or suggestions to, to bounce ideas off other match directors. There's no kind of lessons learned, wins being being shared, no way to report when something goes well or something doesn't. So you might have match directors doing a good job and learning lessons, but there's not really a, an information network to disseminate that out. And to me, that's that's the kind of thing that a national organization is, is there for, is to be that channel to create that discussion and allow it to happen and allow these lessons learned to be shared, allow questions to be asked in a way that, that people can actually get helpful feedback. And it's not just, oh, read the FAQ or have you tried searching the forum or you know all the, all the normal nonsense that, that you get on the internet. So I, I don't again, I don't have any answers. I know this is this is an old problem. It's been approached by many people. But again, I don't know that it has really been directly taken head on where it's been someone has really been charged with actually dedicating their focus to it and, and really working on figuring out a program to get clubs that don't currently run USPSA matches, figuring out what's stopping them and, and how to get them ramped up, whether it's, hey, here are USPSA shooters in your area. Here's the the closest 10 certified ROs and CROs. Maybe they can help you or that, that kind of thing. I mean, this information is out there. We just have to decide to, to try and do this. But so that, that, that's the first one. The first way to, to get more matches is start matches at ranges that don't currently have them. The second one is increase the number of shooters at each match. Now, typically most matches are already running as big a squads as they can, but there might be strategies that different matches are using, whether it's going to a, a two-day match. So instead of using all the bays at your club to, to run one big match on Saturday, maybe you use fewer bays, but you leave the stages set up and you, you're able to run squads Saturday and Sunday. And so you have fewer stages and fewer squads at a time, but by running squads two days, you can get twice the number of people through those smaller squads. Things like that, figuring out best practices about how to administer that how to have some people do you, do you need how many people do you need on site for both days can you work out some kind of some people you know you have a saturday match director and a sunday match director do, you know you, you probably need some level of continuity but it doesn't need to be 10 people figuring out those those best practices and then obviously the the third possible option it seems to me for for getting more matches and more slots at matches is just to increase the number of matches run at, at a club that already has the props already has the infrastructure now obviously this one's 
a little tricky because in a lot of cases, most match directors already they, they're, they're kind of tired after their one monthly match and they're not really in a hurry to run one a second time in the month or a third or a fourth time unless somehow we can figure out to to make the value worth it make and, and i don't i don't know that's what i'm saying i don't know the answer to these things but these seem like the sort of three avenues of investigation but it, it, if there's a way to make it so that match directors by either sharing the load or taking turns or whatever it is you can get the clubs that already have the props that already have the approval from their board or whatever it is to run matches under this format. If you can make it palatable to that club and to volunteers to run a second match in the month, maybe that increases the supply. Now, will some people just shoot both matches in the month? Yeah, they they will, but maybe that opens up slots at other matches that they're not driving to that weekend. But it's just, I mean, it's, it's so crazy to me that the, one of the biggest problems facing this, this sport and even if you look at it at the at the very top level, as so it's almost a, a McDonald's franchise, right? If you're if you're the the CEO of USPSA and you're trying to figure out how do we grow the sport, the fact that you can't actually build more locations, you can't actually get more bodies into matches, it seems like that would be a, a really big worry. Again, you can sell someone a membership, but if they if they can't get into matches because they're not sitting on their computer when registration opens, then are they going to renew that membership? Are they going to stay or are they just going to be a part of this, whatever it is, four or five, six thousand member churn every year that that people who come in, buy a membership, stay for a year, two, three, and then decided not to renew? Why are those people not renewing? That's that's a that's a good question that we need to be asking. I, I don't know if any actual research is being done on those people that let their memberships lapse, but I think there's a gold mine of data to be had in that if if the board and the national leadership chose to actually look at it. But beyond that, it's just, you know, talking to to people about this topic, when I bring up other ideas about clubs adding programs like having a, a practice night or having a, a USPSA, you know, 101 intro class or having some kind of smaller match that, that's easier to get into that doesn't quite have the, the commitment level of a, of a six stage club match, which that's a topic for another time. And I, I have some ideas about that kind of stuff, but at some level, what's the point of all that stuff? What's the point of getting more people in the wide end of the funnel if they have nowhere to go? And what's the point of doing a, a club practice night? If why would people practice if they can't go to matches? It's not like a, a practice night would reduce the demand for matches. If anything, doing something like that would increase the demand for matches don't get me wrong. I actually think that in my mind, in an ideal world, every club that that did run a match would have some kind of practice night where new people could could show up, get a little bit of practice with a timer, but also get a chance to run either mini stages or drills, run them multiple times. I mean, everybody knows that if you actually want to improve, you have to be able to to isolate something and then try an alternate technique, iterate on it. And, and that's what practice is for is being able to reproduce that failure and then try something different and figure out what works and and begin to ingrain that that alternate pattern. And that's why matches really are fundamentally not great practice, not beyond a certain level. They they get you exposure to the timer and and dealing with stage planning and adrenaline, but in terms of actually seeing yourself do something wrong on one stage and then having a chance to practice doing it again correctly, 
you don't get that at, at matches, but any club that has the props to host a match could host a practice night as well. And I think, I think that's something that would be a, a really interesting thing if that were more a part of the culture where if someone wants to get, you know, instead of showing up to shoot their first match at a club match, they could, they just show up to the, the practice night, which also has an element of, Hey, you know, learning the rules and, Oh, what, what division does my gun fit into? And, and having that as a, as a, as a partner program to the the monthly club match, you have a monthly or weekly or whatever it is practice night. But again, there's at least around here, there's not really any reason to do that. All the matches, all the club matches fill up. And so why would you go out of your way to try and recruit more shooters when all it's going to do is make it harder for you and your friends to, to get into the few club matches that you want to shoot already. It's, it's, it's completely bizarre. I mean, the, this sport is it's so fun and so addictive that as soon as people get a little taste, they want as much of it as they can, they can get their hands on. And what is, what are we doing about that? Nothing. The, at a national level, headquarters is just expecting clubs to emerge out of thin air. And that's, it, it's just, it makes no sense to me. And like I said, I, I, I think that the problem was sort of temporarily abated over the last year or two because ammo has been so hard to get, but things are turning around. And I think this is going to start. If it hasn't been a problem in in your area for a while, I think it's going to be much more of a problem, at least based on what I'm seeing. I think, I think matches are going to start filling up again and it's going to be really unpleasant if, you know, as someone new trying to get into the sport, they're going to have a tough time getting into matches as people in the sport, it's going to be kind of like, well, you know, why should we really try and grow the sport if there there are no slots? Again, I don't know if this is a, a national trend. I would love to hear what you are seeing. Send me an email. But I, I definitely have reports from I've talked to people in, in different parts of the country where this this definitely is happening in other spots. Now, that doesn't mean it's happening everywhere. It just means that the number of places it's it's not just central North Carolina where this is happening. But I think this is a this is a huge issue for the sport. I think we are we are at something like a natural carrying capacity in the number of matches, not the number of members. And so, yeah, growing growing the number of members without growing the number of matches or number of slots at matches or, or however you want to count it without growing the the ability of shooters to actually participate in the sport. It, it doesn't matter. And and we need to be serious about fixing that problem, not adding limited optics, which at the end of the day, either a is just going to be something new for people who are already in the sport or B let's say it does bring in a thousand new members this year. Where are they going to go? So I think this is a big deal. I think we need to be talking about it. And hopefully if I'm elected, I'll have a chance to influence it, but yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Definitely. Send me an email. Let me know what what you're seeing at the area around you. Where have matches been filling up? Are they just now starting to fill up again? Do you have plenty of space at every match near you? I, I, I genuinely don't know if this is a regional thing. If it's closer to bigger population centers, things fill up. Whereas in the more rural areas, matches are are struggling to find shooters. I don't know. I mean, this, this data is out there. If they really wanted to compile it, USPSA practice score i mean we could we could make this happen but that data is not really available to the to the lay person right now and so anecdotes is the best that i have but i i would be really curious to hear what you're seeing 
and what you're what you're experiencing and what your ideas are. If you've done something that works, if you've done something and it was a failure, what it was. I, I just I, I think this is a huge issue. I'm really curious to start noodling on some ideas of, of how to fix it. So, yeah, let me let me know what you've seen, what you think and, and what you've heard. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is ben at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.